chapter 38, Job chapter 38, it's found in page 443 in your pew Bibles if you'd like to turn there. And following that, we'll be reading from Article 9 of the Belgic Confession, which is found on page 857, and it is a long one, so you may want to follow along and turn there. Job chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the sea and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of the deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness? That you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home. You know, for you were born then and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or have you seen the storehouses of the hail? Which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war. What is the way to the place where the light is distributed or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose wound did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pallades, or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Mazaroth in their season, or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of heaven? Can you establish their rule on earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds, that a flood of water may may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings? that they may go and stay to you, here we are. Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Can you hunt the prey or the lion or satisfy the appetite of young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey, 
when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you bow your heads in prayer with me? Father God, you do indeed attach your blessing to the teaching of your word and to the encouragement of the saints. So we ask now that as we consider your word and your glory and the doctrine of the Trinity, you would bless it in our hearts, that you would increase our understanding and increase our love and knowledge of you. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you'll turn to Belgic Confession, Article 9, page 857 in the Pew Bibles. Not the Pew Bibles, excuse me, the Psalter Hymnals. Article 9, the scriptural witness on the Trinity. All these things we know from the testimonies of the Holy Scriptures, as well as from the effects of the persons, especially from those we feel within ourselves. The testimonies of the Holy Scriptures, which teach us to believe in this Holy Trinity, are written in many places of the Old Testament, which need not be enumerated, but only chosen with discretion. In the book of Genesis, God says, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So God created man in his image. Indeed, male and female, he created them. Behold, man has become like one of us. It appears from this that there is a plurality of persons within the deity when he says, let us make man in our image. And afterwards, he indicates the unity when he says, God created. It is true that he he does not say here how many persons there are, But what is somewhat obscure to us in the Old Testament is very clear in the New. For when our Lord was baptized in the Jordan, the voice of the Father was heard saying, This is my dear Son. The Son was seen in the water, and the Holy Spirit appeared in the form of a dove. So in the baptism of all believers, this form was prescribed by Christ. Baptize all people in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. In the Gospel according to Luke, the angel Gabriel says to Mary, the mother of our Lord, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, that Holy One to be born of you shall be called the Son of God. And in another place, it says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. There are three who bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. In all these passages, we are fully taught that there are three persons, in the one and only divine essence. And although this doctrine surpasses human understanding, we nevertheless believe it now, through the word, waiting to know and enjoy it fully in heaven. Furthermore, we must note the particular works and activities of these three persons in relation to us. The Father is called our creator by reason of his power. The Son is our savior and redeemer by his blood. The Holy Spirit is our sanctifier by his living in our hearts. This doctrine of the Holy Trinity has always been maintained in the true church from the time of the apostles until the present against Jews, Muslims, and certain false teachers and heretics such as Marcion, Manny, Paraxes, Sibelius, Paul of Samosota, Arius, and others like them who were rightly condemned by the Holy Fathers. And so in this matter, we willingly accept the three ecumenical creeds, the apostles, 
the Nicene, and the Athanasian, as well as what the ancient fathers decided in agreement with them. If you'll look at your outline, we'll begin with, obviously, point number one. All these things we know from the testimonies of the Holy Scripture. That language is taken straight out of our confession. So the church did not first invent the doctrine of the Trinity, but found its basis in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So, letter A. For one, both the post-apostolic church as well as the Reformed heritage has taken great care to draw its doctrine from the Word itself. They've taken great care to draw the doctrine from the Word itself. And so many have argued throughout the history of the church that the doctrine of the Trinity is not biblical and that the Christian church made it up, arguing either in various forms against the deity of the Son or of the Spirit. You'll note that many of those groups are named in the end of the Article 9. Now, it makes little sense to suggest that the church conjured Trinitarian doctrine or maintained it as a bar for orthodoxy if it was not clearly represented in Scripture. Now, this point derives from letter A. If the church was committed to drawing orthodox teaching from the Word, why would they make this up? Additionally, if you wanted to make something up as a core tenet of the Christian faith, as a, a line upon which orthodoxy is measured, it would make little sense to create a doctrine that supersedes or, or stress, tests the, stress tests the limits of human understanding and comprehension, like that of the Trinity. Something that is extra-rational or, or something that we can't understand comprehensively because it goes beyond what we as creatures can comprehend. Why make something up as a bar for orthodoxy if it's extra-rational? So it makes little sense for the church to do that. It's not very believable. If you're going to try and conjure up something or convince people of something that's not very clear in Scripture. Now that's not the case. It is very clear in Scripture. We find additional evidence for the historicity of this as well as uh, its representation in the early church in that, as well as its representation in Scripture, in that converted Jews, it is clear in Scripture, is especially clear in that converted Jews who believed that God was one stood against paganism, polytheism, and accepted Trinitarian baptismal forms, liturgical blessings, and benedictions. So once again, we see this represented in the conversion of Jews to Christianity. It makes little sense that they would convert unless they were absolutely convinced that they were being consistent with the faith of their fathers. And this is exactly what converted Jews saw themselves doing. They didn't think of themselves as separated from the ancient faith of their fathers, but consistent with it. So in order for them to believe that Jesus Christ was Lord and believe in the Trinity actually indicates that, they, that what they were holding to was in essential unity with the teachings of the Old Testament with the faith of their fathers, namely the oneness of God in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so you'll, if you'll look down at the last point in letter A, the fact that it is clearly represented in Scripture and is difficult to comprehend actually points to the truthfulness of the doctrine, which is partly why we willingly accept it in the three ecumenical creeds. 
the reality of its difficulty doesn't dissuade, but actually gives credence to the fact that it's represented in Scripture. We don't, we don't shy away from believing that which is complex or that's what, that which is difficult to comprehend for the human mind. Letter B. In the Old Testament, it is plainly taught and does not require one to jump through hoops. The creation narrative presents the drama and conversation that takes place in the divine courtroom. Multiple persons are speaking. Let us make man in our image. Now this seems kind of plain, but if God is the only existent being up to this point in creation, in, in all of existence, then how can other, any other being be present with whom he is speaking? There's none. So it's implicit then that there are multiple persons in the Godhead, though as our confession notes, it's not exactly plain who these persons are. It becomes, of course, more plain as the narrative unfolds who these actors are. The Spirit here is the agent who hovers over the waters in sovereign power. And even the Spirit here cannot be anything but God, since the only one who possesses the power to create order out of chaos, the waters of the deep, is God. Second, the second example we have from the Old Testament, David calls his future son, his Lord, in Psalm 110, verse 1, and refers to him later as a human figure who will sit at God's, the Father, God's right hand. So David, as a faithful servant of the Lord, cannot ascribe the title, the Lord, to his son as a human figure, unless, of course, this would actually be true. It would be blasphemy otherwise. Third, in the angel of the Lord, Theophanies, in the Psalms, and in the prophets, the angel is simultaneously distinguished from and yet identified with Yahweh, that is God. Isaiah 63 gives a wonderful example of this. It actually presents God's saving work, and it attributes it to the angel himself, Jesus, who saved and delivered the people of God in this moment in redemptive history, and it will go on to refer to the grieving of this Savior by the name of the Holy Spirit. So there in Psalm 63, all three persons of the Trinity are represented. So this teaching within the Old Testament is actually irrefutable if you do responsible interpretive work. You, you, you can't really deny it. Now in the, Old, in the New Testament, it becomes even clearer in the person and revelation of the Son his redemptive acts, and the teachings of his apostles, but once again, it is not new. So first, Paul tenaciously teaches that God is one, while at the same time affirming the lordship of Christ. We see this represented in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So Paul here ascribes to the title of Jesus, the Lord, while at the same time referring to God as one. Second, Paul confesses the divinity of the Son, clearly in Philippians 2, 1 through 11, as we read this evening, and also in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 6, or 8, verse 6, 
And he also confesses before the Roman governor Felix that his faith in Jesus as Lord is not a cult or a sect breaking off from and distinct from the faith of his fathers, but consistent with the teaching and faith of God, uh, uh, faith in, in the God of his fathers. So he's not being inconsistent then with what he believed before his conversion, and he has not, belie- he has not abandoned faith in the one God of the Old Testament. He instead finds that faith in Christ is consistent with the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We see this in Acts chapter 24, verses 14 to 15a. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having hope in God. Third, when Jesus is baptized, we see three actors, just as we witness at creation. The Father speaking the beloved Son, who is baptized as the Spirit hovers above Jesus. And fourth, perhaps there is no clearer statement than when the the risen Lord Christ appears to John in the book of Revelation and states, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Brings us to our second point. Although this doctrine surpasses human understanding, just because we cannot understand it comprehensively, it does not mean that we can freely disregard it. This is why we read Job chapter 38. There is a categorical distinction between God's being and power and us. Job learns this in the face of his affliction. He is Nobody to question God, ask or answer the questions that God asks him. Job doesn't, doesn't even know the questions. I, w- I want to make this point. God is the one asking the questions to Job in chapter 38. But Job doesn't even know the questions to ask God if the roles were reversed. Nor, in light of that, does he have the ability to answer him. B, to faithfully trust the doctrine of the Trinity reflects the reality that we are creaturely and finite. So I can, as a creature, say that God is three persons and one essence that are undivided, distinguishable in their operations, but not in their essence, and yet not confused, without having to work out an exact science for how that is, or feeling as though I need to understand it perfectly. And just because I can't explain the rationality of the Trinity to somebody that is questioning it doesn't negate the the truthfulness of the doctrine. He's God. I'm not. But I can, without question, as a creature, receive and affirm what the Scriptures clearly teach. And see... To faithfully trust the doctrine of the, of the Trinity reflects the reality that He is Almighty God who is above and beyond our understanding and yet has made Himself known to creatures in His Word. There is really nothing more that you or I could do to reflect the power of God than actually believe that this doctrine is true. 
By faith in a God whose being goes beyond our understanding and accepting that as creatures and reflecting that even in our posture, even in our doctrine, even in the way that we approach our theology about who He is, we reflect the reality that God is so much greater than we can comprehend, so much greater than we can grasp, and so much greater than we could ever describe. You're affirming in your doctrine of the Almighty God, in your, in your willingness to accept your creatureliness, your finiteness, compared to His infinitude, that He is indeed Almighty God. Third, we must note their particular activities, especially those we feel within ourselves. God the Father is our Creator who redeems us by His Son and keeps us by His Spirit. A. Scripture presents to us the Almighty God who is unified in His activity, not only to create, but also to redeem. Scripture presents to us the Almighty God who is unified in His activity, not only to create, but also to redeem. So if God can do all of this, if He can do all that He brought before Job in creation, which, by the way, goes on for another three chapters as, Job, as God questions Job. Is he also not in complete control of your life in his providential and redemptive care? The reality is, nothing can hinder the unstoppable plan of God. He is unified in, his, in all of his activity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Letter B. Nothing could be more comforting than to know that the, that the one God, as tender, as tender Father, loves us for the sake of the Son and operates in our hearts by His Spirit. God is not a cold and ancient being. He's not the angry God of the Old Testament, as some would accuse, but a loving Father who gave His own Son and then gave the very same Spirit to create order out of chaos in the hearts of his own people. That's not an impersonal God. That's a, that's a loving and personal father. See, he elects us in the Son before the foundations of the world and executes his saving work by the Spirit. Gerhardus Voss said, the best proof that he will never cease to love us lies in that he never began. What's that mean? God the Father elects in his Son before anything actually was. So there was never a time when he began to love because he has loved us from all eternity. And that truth is a truth that we only know by our doctrine of the Trinity. If Jesus was adopted as a man by the Father, as adoptionists would accuse or, or, or assert, and then he was endowed later in his life upon perfection with deity, then the truth that God loved you from all eternity in the Son and for the sake of the Son melts away. I can believe the truth that he will never cease to love me because he is God and he is all-powerful. And I can believe that truth because he is the triune God. He is the loving Father 
He is the sacrificial son. He is the recreating and sanctifying spirit. Because of what he is, he loves us. He saves us. He recreates us. He sanctifies us. And these are truths that we would not know so comfortingly unless we knew him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Letter D. Our ability to note the particular activities of each person in the Godhead impacts our knowledge of God and strengthens our ability to offer him praise and glory. How can you worship a God that you do not know? We cannot just say, I don't want to know doctrine, I don't care for doctrine, I just want to love God. In order to love God, in order to offer to him more adequate and more knowledgeable and more expressive praise in worship, it requires us to be able to, do, to say things about who he is in his operations. Our doctrine of the Trinity allows us to praise God with more exactness and to know the God that we serve. And finally, letter E. Our ability to note the particular activities of each person in the Godhead impacts our experience and walk in the Christian life. This is my favorite of all the points. We pray to the Father in the name of the Son by the help of the Spirit every single time we pray. And so I can be confident then that the one God hears my prayers because the Son who gave his life as a ransom for my own presents them to the Father. That prayer itself is aided and carried up into the heavenly court by the Spirit. The Father then hears and answers my prayer because he loves me in the Son and for the sake of the Son. So the doctrine of the Trinity thus teaches us that we love, we serve, we worship a personal God who is Trinitarian and his love goes beyond our comprehension. And that is not a bad thing. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we come to you in the name of the Son, by the help of the Spirit. We praise you, we thank you, that you have loved us from all eternity, that even now you hear our prayers for the sake of the Son, and that each and every day you work in our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit. Increase our understanding, increase our apprehension of your glory, that we might faithfully serve you and know you. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen.